Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of The Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be digging into scripture with you again today. Uh, We have been looking at the new monarchy of Israel after the people complained that God wasn't a good enough king. As ridiculous as that sounds, that is what happened. The monarchy started with Saul. Uh, It was taken away from him because he was disobedient to God. And now we have been with David recently. Last week we talked about David's anointing. And this week, perhaps the most famous story in all of the Bible, David v. Goliath. Okay, so even in modern culture, this is probably still the most common illusion for someone who's facing really long odds. Okay, sports, whatever it may be. I watch a lot of sports, so that's where my mind goes. But David versus Goliath is like a, a regular uh, regular theme, a regular illusion that people will make, even in modern culture today. So that is one reason that I say it is perhaps the most famous Bible story of them all, though there are many. But we're going to examine the story a little bit, take a look at some of the details. I want to take a look at some of the details that are going to help us connect this story with what we learned last week and the really the point of last week's lesson with the anointing of David is that God looks on the heart, not on the outward appearance. David did not have the outward look or the societal or cultural status that was expected of somebody that God would choose. However, God saw in his heart a king who was going to follow him, which was different than what Saul chose to do. So we're here with David, set the scene. The Israelites good old Israelites, they're facing off with their all too familiar enemies, the Philistines, those evil Philistines. So the armies are camped on either side of a valley. They're on kind of like a raised area on either side of a valley. Fun fact, I've actually been to what they believe is the site of this encounter in Israel. I took a trip to Israel. I always say that what they think is the site because a it's been a it's been a long time since these things happened and b like the reality of the world is that uh, if they can make money off of telling you that somewhere is a biblical site, people will do that. That's not that's not specific to Israel. That's anywhere in the world where people will take advantage of you to make money. So I always say what they what they believe the site of this encounter was. But anyways, I've been there and it was pretty cool. Okay, so we are in First Samuel chapter seventeen today, and we are I'm gonna the first three verses kind of set that scene I just laid out for you. So starting in verse four, it says this. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Okay, so here we go. This famous old giant, champion of the Philistines, Goliath. <sighs> Goliath, yeah. I'm sure they were very happy. He's a big fella. Okay, so the Hebrew text here says that uh, six cubits in a span, which would be roughly nine feet, nine inches. Okay, so real, real large. There's some other things from later that say it's four cubits, which would make him about six, six. Okay. So uh, the th- here's the thing. 
and this is what I read in the commentary by Dr. Bergen. Dr. Bergen's back this week. Um, sometimes in the copying of texts, scribes would change things in a specific way that they might change things or to make things more believable. So it's entirely possible that the reason that in these later texts, um, it says uh, four cubits instead is because they wanted the story to be more believable. Uh, typically, you want to choose the reading that more likely gave rise to the other reading. That's just a tenet of text criticism. It makes a lot more sense that somebody would uh, change the text to make it a little more quote unquote realistic to four cubits than to suddenly bump it up to six cubits. I think we would all generally agree that that's true. That's not hard and fast and you couldn't like prove that, but it does lead us to believe I'm, I'm going to take what the, the text here says. I'm going to take six cubits. I'm going to say nine, nine is what we're supposed to know about Goliath, which is pretty big. Six, six is huge too. I mean, yeah, there's people now that we know that are six, six, but still it's very, very large. His armor, um, you're probably like, how much is a shekel of bronze? I looked that up. Um, I didn't get that specific. The armor he has weighs about 150 pounds total. I think the like just the uh, the coat of mail that he has was about 122 or something like that by itself. And then with the helmet and the greaves and all that stuff, I kind of estimated probably about 150 pounds of armor he's wearing. That is crazy amount of armor to think that you could wear that and still move. On the outside, he was clearly superior. <laughs> On the outside, right? The appearance of invincibility reminds us, here we go, of the lesson from 1 Samuel 16. God doesn't look on the outward appearance. Thank you for pointing that out to me, Dr. Berg. And I was like, oh, these aren't two just totally discrete stories. These, there's some significant overlap. This is a very, a very specific uh, way that we get to see this principle that we learned in 1 Samuel 16 play out. And we're going to get to see how the person whose appearance was not as impressive is going to do an awesome job because of God. So moving on then to verse 8, it says, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath has a suggestion, one that maybe we are familiar with. He suggests a battle of each nation's champion, also known as representative combat. Representative combat, apparently, from some ancient Near East historians that I read, not terribly common in that time and place, okay? And the fact that we see that Goliath felt the need to explain what was going on, um, maybe that's for the readers, uh, maybe that was for the readers' benefit, maybe it was for all of Israel's benefit, but from, what, from the knowledge that we have, and again, this is happening like 3,000 years ago, so let's not just plant our flag firmly that no one did representative combat back then. But it seems that it's possibly likely this is not super common. And so, but that is what the Philistines are suggesting here is a representative combat that one person come out to fight Goliath, winner take all. Okay, and the idea that uh, the loser side would be servants to the winner side, which didn't, like, even though we know what happens in this story, that's, that actually doesn't 
follow through because what it's not like you have some binding contract on that right but the israelites are too afraid they're dismayed and afraid i'd give them a bad grade i'm sorry i couldn't help it however even though all of israel was afraid and dismayed bad grade we enter into the scene a youthful shepherd in verse 12 now david was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Does it sound familiar from last week? In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Okay, so we're reintroduced to David and his family here. Uh, these are uh, details that we largely knew from last week, but we are being reminded here, reminded that he has older brothers. Um, there are some clues here that Dr. Bergen, who writes the commentary on 1 Samuel that I read, and he's doing an awesome job, very helpful. He has some insight on what we can learn from this set of facts about David's age. Okay, so the fact that three of his older brothers went to battle, but he didn't, raises two possibilities, okay? And they could possibly be true at the same time. It's kind of an and-or situation. Um, the first thing, the first possibility is that David and his younger four brothers were all under 20. So 20 was the military age in Israel per Deuteronomy, okay? That was when they were um, eligible for military service. The and or is that since three were already serving, they weren't required to have more. That is not a certainty, but it is possible. Okay, so but what I take from this is it is most likely and we're going to see a couple other things throughout and I'll go ahead and mention them here. So we're already on the topic. We're told elsewhere that David's a great warrior. He's also called a youth and mocked by Goliath later. And he's also called a youth by uh, Saul later. And that leads me to believe that he is not of military age because they keep mentioning that he's a youth. Okay, even Saul, who would probably know at least the relative age of David um, because I don't know if you remember this from last week, but David basically becomes a court person for Saul because he plays the harp when he gets upset. Um, and so David's around. I'd say it's likely that David is less than 20 here. That's, I would say, most likely. I don't know about this three this three brothers rule. I don't know if there's any like research on that or if that's just a, a guess. But uh, my my assumption is that David is younger than 20 here. So either way, David was not with the army. But remember, he was in Saul's court. So we're told that he was permitted to travel back and forth to his dad, probably with the understanding that with three uh, sons at war, uh, Jesse probably needed a little extra help. And we also saw already that uh, Jesse's old. It says that in verse 12, that he has advanced in years. So he's permitted to go back and forth a little bit. On one trip back, Jesse sends some provisions, as you would imagine he might, for the brothers. He also sends them a little, uh, I don't know if it's like a bribe or something, to the commander of the company. He says, to, he says, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. If I was the commander of the thousand, I would be most excited to get some cheese. Cheese is delicious. Um, so he heads back, um, and then Jesse also wants kind of a token to see how the sons are doing. And this is when David sees the situation that has arisen 
with Goliath. So moving down to verse 22 here in 1 Samuel 17. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Okay, so David runs up uh, into the ranks to go talk to his brothers. He hears the trash talk from Goliath. Um, we saw that he uh, Goliath was doing this twice a day for 40 days. Um, so it was happening pretty frequently. He hears this trash talk. He sees the response of the army. Um, he's kind of like, so who is this guy who is a Philistine and he defies their army? By the way, what kind of reward does a person get for, you know, if they were to take out revenge on this guy? David's He's interested. He's interested to know what happens if he was to if he was to enter into that battle. How uh, how he would be rewarded. So they tell him basically like I don't know, just riches and freedom and a wife, uh, no big deal. So David's like, okay, very interesting. Um, and he actually um, is, I think, what he's kind of trying to drum up in the camp is like I'm, I'm kind of interested in in taking this down. And we actually see that. Um, that's what his oldest brother, Eliab, thinks about him. He actually says, you just wanted to come here and see the battle. Uh, it kind of just seems like Eliab's being really jealous. Um, so David goes, after seeing what he saw with Goliath, um, he goes to chat with Saul um, and, you know, talk about this Philistine fellow. So down now to verse 32. Also in between that, he asks some more people about what the reward is. So he's really interested in finding out what this reward is. I was trying to, I was actually thinking before, I was like, oh, it's one of the things that keeps coming up in uh, the commentary is how David is a representative of a person who follows the law, a person who is a, a Torah man, that he follows the law of Moses. And one of the things of the Torah would be on the word of two or three witnesses. And I was like, maybe, maybe he's just really, maybe he just really wants a reward. I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, again, plant my flag there. Uh, it's possible that that's what's going on, that he's, you know, trying to get the witness of two or three but either way, he wants, to, he wants to know. He wants to know what he's going to get if he was to win. So moving down to verse 32 and away from my ramblings. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. See, youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Let's just pause to say how awesome it is to consider a bear or a lion having a beard. Pretty cool. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Again, David's regarded as a youth, probably younger than army age. We're just following the breadcrumbs here to help us understand. I think it, it enriches our story because if we think of him as a person of fighting age, then it, it's just a little different than with how people would view him. Because part of the big thing about the story of David and Goliath is he's viewed as such an underdog, right? So being regarded as a youth probably speaks to him being at least younger than army age. Hard to say exactly. But either way, he's seen as a youth, somebody who's not experienced, somebody who's not equipped for something like this. David does tell him, uh, I have killed a bear and a lion, so maybe back on off. I'm a pretty good warrior. Uh, but really the thing that stands out about David is that he believes fully that the same God who delivered him from the lion with a beard and the bear with a beard will deliver him from this super giant Philistine who defied God. I think David's kind of taking this like, uh, if if Goliath is going to call out God this way, then whoever goes to fight for the Lord is in pretty good shape uh, because obviously God is not going to uh, back down to this Philistine. So really, maybe it just takes somebody to show up. Uh, so Saul, after after they have this conversation, um, I don't know if y'all have seen the VeggieTales version of this, but I always remember, I think Junior, the little asparagus, uh, plays David and he like puts him in this armor and it kind of looks like a like a, one of those little um, Nutribullet like uh, choppers that he gets stuck in. And it's kind of funny. That's what I always imagine about this scene there in the tent and little little Junior, the asparagus, getting stuck in this giant armor. Um, but he tries to get him to take his armor, his weapons. They're, they're too encumbering. David's not used to them. Uh, so David, just in his normal cloak, um, his normal tunic, rather, maybe, uh, takes his staff and five stones, and he's got a sling. So that's it. So remember, we got this really, really specific uh, idea of, and this description of how Goliath is armed to the teeth, um, wearing 150 pounds of armor. And then we've got young David, who... I would wager doesn't weigh 150 pounds. Uh, and he's just got a staff, a sling, five stones. Okay. Now, this is something I learned too from the commentary. There's a couple of, uh, in a couple of museums, I forgot to read where they were, but some ancient Near East sling stones actually on display in some museums around the world. And so they're actually a little bigger than you would think. They're about the size of a tennis ball. Maybe you think they're that big. I kind of imagine more like those tiny rocks that you would put in like your backyard so you don't have to mow grass there. But they're about the size of a tennis ball and they weigh about a pound. So and a pound doesn't sound heavy, but if it's getting slung several miles per hour, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. So about the size of a tennis ball weighing about a pound is what uh, these stones that David picked up are most likely. Um, but he's got no armor. He's got very basic weaponry. David approaches Goliath. Verse 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sunk into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Wow, yeah. What a great story. After some excellent, excellent Old Testament trash talk about feeding people to birds and to wild beasts. Love it. A little probably too intense for most situations I've been in, but I really enjoy it. Goliath comes after David, probably hulking and slow. David moving quick. More importantly, got on his side. David releases a perfect shot with his sling, takes the giant down. Then afterward... Uh, what after verse 50, what we see, he's going to take out Goliath's own sword and he is going to decapitate Goliath with it. Uh, after that, the army of Israel is encouraged and finally finds their, uh, finds their, their courage, I guess. Um, and they go after the host of the Philistines and route them until they run away back onto their cities. They go and they loot the Philistine camp. Wow, man, what a reversal of fortune. What a good story. David prevailing over Goliath. David fully putting his trust in God to help him overcome an enemy that, of course, if you were just to match them up next to each other, you'd say, yeah, I think the, I think the giant's probably going to win here. But that's not what happened. And I think, too, as we move into how do we apply this, and I think I'm going to say something that maybe you feel like is simple, and then I hope to be helpful by the end. But the reality of our lives is that we all face Goliaths of certain, of, of varying types. We face Goliaths, varying types of Goliaths in our lives. The one thing that is not different, we're not actually facing nine foot nine guys in armor. One thing that is not different, though, is that it is and always will be the Lord who is the one who delivers. We do not have the ability on our own through willpower, through careful planning, through control, through manipulation, through physical strength, through logic, through relational skills, even not through Bible knowledge. We do not have the ability to face the difficulties of our lives, the Goliaths of our lives, through these means. And of course, not all of these things I listed are bad. Some of them are just usually bad. Manipulation, usually, usually bad. But if we put our hope in these things, then we are destined to fail. Okay. For example, Bible knowledge. Of course, Bible knowledge is a great part of what we should have when we're trying to trust God, right? Bible knowledge but if, if we're putting our hope in our knowledge of the Bible itself and not the application of it, then we're also going to fall flat. If I believe, well, I know my Bible so well that I can face this situation, that's a, it's a, still a form of us trying to fix it on our own. Okay, Careful planning. 
who doesn't like a careful plan, right? There's a lot of good things that can come from careful planning. However, if that is what we believe is going to deliver us from the incredible difficulties, when I'm talking about Goliaths, I'm not talking about when you stub your toe. I'm talking about those things that when you think of, wow, this is one of the most significant difficulties in my life or has been in my life or something I fear, whatever that may be. If we think that we're going to be able to plan our way out of it, control our way out of it, logic our way out of it, we're, we're totally missing the point. We're totally missing the point. The Lord is the one who delivers. Our Goliaths in our lives, our Goliaths have a purpose. And it can be really easy to forget that too. That even though many of our Goliaths are a result of sin, whether our own sin or the sin of others against us, whatever it may be, or just the sin that exists in the world, God uses our Goliaths for a purpose. And one of the biggest purposes of any sort of Goliath in our life is to realize, is to help us realize that we are in need and that God is the one who provides what we actually need. Those things that seem way too big for us to handle one of the main things that God's doing in that is rec- helping us recognize our weakness because his power is perfected in weakness. Our glass have a purpose because of the mercy of God, that he takes these really difficult things and he gives them purpose and meaning and he draws us to himself through them. And there are likely things that when we are facing these kind of Goliaths of our lives and when we're trusting in God to deliver us, there are likely things that the Spirit is leading us to do when we face our Goliaths. Okay, we shouldn't say, well, I'm trusting God, and that's to avoid what he's commanded me to do. Okay, so, you know, for example, let's say I'm in in conflict with somebody in my community. I don't say, well, I'm trusting God, and I'm just going to sit here and uh, not address it with them. Because we already know from scripture that if, if, there's, if there's something between us that we're, we're meant to go to one another, that we're meant to engage with one another to not only grow our relationship, but to show that the reconciliation that can exist between us is a picture of the reconciliation made possible through Jesus between us and God. Okay, trusting God, quote unquote, I'm using my air quotes here, I know you can't see them. Trusting God is not an excuse to be disobedient. Okay, so it's this... We can have, we can kind of lean one way or the other. We can have this kind of apathy and say we're trusting God, or we can really be trying to figure out our best as we can and saying we're trusting God. But in reality, we're hoping we're going to be able to figure it out through our willpower, careful planning, control, manipulation, physical strength, logic, relations, goals, relational skills, Bible knowledge. Okay. Neither of those is what we should be doing. So here's, I'm going to give us a, the only solution for a Goliath is that we surrender to God's will in any situation. That's really the only solution to a Goliath is to surrender to God's will in the situation. I'm going to give us a little three, a little three-step plan here for how we can tackle these things. Pray, obey, pray. Pray, obey, pray is the little is a, just a little short little uh, cheat sheet of how we can trust God in the face of glass. So first, praying. It, it alerts ourselves because God already knows that we're in need. It helps us understand I'm in need. It's an expression of our need. It's a humbling thing. It should humble us to come before the creator of the world and make a request before him. So if we pray, God, I see this Goliath in front of me. I want to trust you to get me through this, however that looks, not however I want it to look, but however you want it to look. 
give me wisdom, give me patience, give me perseverance, give me what I need to trust you and to go through this in the way you want me to. Okay, that's one pray. Obey whatever you feel like the Lord's leading you to do in that, be obedient to it. Whatever he has clearly outlined in scripture, do that also. Okay, so being obedient and taking action is not an act of distrust of God. In fact, it's an act of trusting in God because you said, he said, this is the way I should do it. So I'm going to do it that way. That's an, that is a show of trust in who God is. However, there's going to be an end to the amount of things you can do. There's going to be an end to the amount of God's commands you can obey. And in, in all likelihood, everything's not going to be just perfectly solved by the time you get to the end of the things that you can do. So that's why I say, pray again. Pray, God, if there is more for me in this, if there is more that I need to obey, show me, help me be obedient. If I've done what I can do, Lord, I put it in your hands. I submit this to you. Give me patience. Help me to continue to trust you. Help soften uh, other people's hearts that are involved in this, whatever that may be. So we submit ourselves to the Lord. We're obedient to what he's calling us to, whether through the Holy Spirit, through scripture, um, through meaningful community, trustworthy community. And then we pray not only beginning and end, but also throughout. And that's how we show our trust in God in the face of Goliath. Because again, we all face Goliaths of many, many sorts. And I know that everyone listening is facing a Goliath right this instant. So I hope that this story can be an example of how the Lord delivers it's, we just show up. It's an opportunity for God to receive the glory. David isn't the one who should receive our glory from the story. It's God who worked through David. And that's, that's the point. These Goliaths bring glory to God because he's worth it. And he's also working for our good.